0: I hope you're seeing evidence everywhere you look. It's really not hard to see God at work if you just look and don't give people too much credit. If you really think about it, we're just not that good. I have a message for you about that, as a matter of fact. Let's start by reading Scripture. Would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7? We'll start at verse 15. In your pew Bible, you'll find that on page 965, Matthew 7. Starting at verse 15, and it's page 965 in your pew Bible. Jesus is talking, and he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, this fruit of the Spirit that the Apostle Paul calls goodness, on the surface, seems like a pretty easy thing to comprehend, right? I mean, goodness is a gift of the Spirit, or the fruit of the Spirit. And, and yet, honestly, what... By what standard do you measure goodness? I mean, how, how do you rate goodness? Several years ago, I took a, a training class in a form of evangelism called Evangelism Explosion. Now, this was created by D. James Kennedy as, and his team at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in 1962. Come to think of it, I was created that year too. So we've both been around a while, me and evangelism explosion, and, and I learned this, this uh, method of evangelism probably 30 years ago, and um, it's most well known for these two diagnostic questions that the evangelist or the, the outreach person asks, and these questions then can lead to a deeper discussion. The first question is, is have you come to a place in your spiritual life where you can say you know for certain that if you died today, you'd go to heaven? That's the first question. And then the second question is, suppose you did die today and you found yourself at the gates of heaven and God said to you, why should I let you in? What would you say? So these are the two questions that evangelism explosion asks and what most people say to those questions what most of the people that I've used those questions with will tell you is if there is a heaven I think I will get in yes I think I'll go to heaven when I die and the second question is is if God asks me why he should let me in my answer is because I've been a good person and this is, this is very common, these two replies. And of course it leads to a whole pattern of evangelism that, uh, that I don't know, after years of practicing it, I haven't decided yet whether I like that particular method. But this is, this is the important thing. These questions are profound and it asks us to consider honestly, on what basis do we consider ourselves good? I mean, what does it mean to be good anyway? Well, for most of us, being good means I don't do the bad things that I see other people doing. Or being good means I'm good as far as my friends and colleagues and family members are concerned. Good is a relative thing, literally, if your relatives think you're good. You're good in your own heart. If you think that you're good because you don't do anything that'll land you in jail, well, maybe you just haven't been caught yet. I see a lot of good drivers out there who just haven't been caught yet. Can I get an amen from Brian? Where are you? (laughs) Right? You know, there are people out there who would consider themselves good, but basically they're as good as it takes. And that, guess what? That includes us, doesn't it? I want you to read another scripture with me. This one is from the Gospel of Luke. It's on page 1043 in your pew Bible. Ten forty-three. It's Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 18. And let's see what Jesus says in this passage. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he he became very sad, and he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible for God for man is possible for God. What is impossible for man is possible with God. And Peter said, "See, we've left our homes and followed you." And he said to them, "Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life so this story I think is Jesus' clearest statement about two really important things the first thing he's saying just for the record is you are wrong to call me good because I am God I mean he, he doesn't you know, that's not his point in this particular passage, but it's implied very clearly that, that you, you weren't wrong to call me good. You just need to understand no one is good except God. No one is good except for God. You know, there are a lot of people out there who do good works. Even this rich young ruler did good things. He was a good guy in the eyes of his neighbors and contemporaries. His religious system considered him good. He no doubt gave money away and probably funded worthwhile projects, and he did a lot of good. And, and you know, it's, it's nice to be recognized for the good you do, and it's Probably a good idea to encourage people who do good works, because we all benefit from them. But at the end of the day, what that makes them is philanthropists. Now I have to I have to say what I got to this point. This, there's a, a funny line in, in The Wizard of Oz, you know, Frank Morgan plays The Wizard, and he's talking to the Tin Man, you, know, and the Tin Man's problem is, is his chest is empty, he doesn't have a heart. And he wants the wizard to give him a heart. And, and the wizard of Oz says to him, you know, back where I come from, there are men who do nothing all day but good deeds. They are called ph-la, 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 uh, good deed doers. And the tin man who wanted a heart worse than anything was told that basically... It wasn't about what you do. It's all about what's in your heart. It's all about the condition of your heart. And so I would argue that this hollow heart, this hollow chest rather, that, that uh, the tin man had is probably uh, sort of emblematic of the hollowness of so much of our good deeds. So many of the good things we do and the good that happens around us, it it does serve. It does help. But at the end of the day, it's altruism. It's philanthropy. It's it's works for, not necessarily for recognition, because I know a lot of people who do good works and don't seek recognition. But the question that you have to ask, that only you can answer in your conversation with the Lord is, what do I get out of this? And why does that matter? You know, it might be because of the causes that you support. And what motivates you is, is your dedication to that cause. And it could be that, that secretly you feel that you have to earn some sort of righteousness that you can't grasp unless you have a a pedigree or a a resume full of deeds that you can look to. But the the big psychological spiritual problem behind so much of the good works that people do is the deep-seated motivation behind it. And maybe that's what Jesus means when he says that no one is good except for God, that you can't be good In fact, in this moment in time recorded for us in the Gospels, we have Jesus basically saying, up to now, you people of God served God in a system where even though you couldn't be good, you had a sort of counterbalance through your atoning acts of sacrifice. In in other words, God's got this ledger, and uh, this is the Old Testament view, right? So God's got this ledger, and basically you're trying to balance the books every time you go to the temple and make sacrifices. The idea is that you can't really be good in God's eyes. You can't be good in the sense of God's holiness. And so the only way to offset that before Jesus came was to make regular sacrifices that would offset your natural Badness, right? And so what Jesus is saying is that that you really don't have a chance to be good without this system of sacrifices. But he's also foreshadowing the super significance of what he's about to do. Because what he's about to do is completely flip that paradigm upside down. So now you don't have to do anything to balance the ledger because. Jesus has thrown the ledger out. Through Jesus, the ledger's just gone. It's It's not there anymore. God isn't keeping a record of your good or evil deeds because of Jesus. And so that opens the way for you to be good. And yet even in light of the New Testament good news, you still can't be good without something you lack. This is what Jesus was driving at when he said to this rich young man, you're a good guy. We can all see that. You're a good guy. Because in other translations, it says that Jesus had compassion on him. He really felt sorry for the guy because it wasn't that the guy was wrong about himself, it was that he didn't understand what he lacked. And that it isn't so much about whether rich or poor or whether you are really committed to your stuff or not, what it really comes down to is the why behind it all. The man could not imagine a different kind of life for himself a life of surrender, a life where he wasn't in control, a life where he gave up everything in order to follow Christ. That's what stopped him short. And so his wealth was, in his case, literal, but in some of our cases, it's more of a figurative thing. I'm just really comfortable in my flesh. I'm really comfortable with my earthly existence. And I have a tendency to behave as though this is all there is. Well, now that starts to hit home, doesn't it? That's where it starts to hit home because now we find ourselves all at some point feeling a little like that rich young man. Well, Lord, I, I, I give all the extra money I have to good causes. I give all my extra food to the needy. I give all my extra time to volunteer work and I give what I can spare to my relationship with my local church community. And not try to get in anybody's business here. Oh, I guess I guess that's what a sermon is, right? But, but, but anyway, it's, it's, it's just like, well, okay, if you put it that way, it starts to hurt a little. Now there's something tingling and you can't decide whether it's good or bad or whether you're good or bad. And I think that's the whole point, really. I think that's the whole point. Jesus said what is impossible for man is possible for God. So he's already set up a plan to get you where you need to be. You just have to surrender to it. See, God never forces you to do anything. And that's partly because God made you in God's own image, which means that to be like God, you have to decide. Because God gave you that capacity. Now, the Apostle Paul really really loaded his spiritual gun for us with this one. Because if you haven't realized it throughout this series of of messages on the fruit of the Spirit, every one of them with a little bit of deeper investigation is just super potent, right? Every one of these these, uh, aspects of the fruit of the Spirit has just hit you to the core if you're paying attention, and this one is no different. You know, the word that Paul used to, uh, to describe goodness is in the Greek, which is the language he would have written it. It's agathosune. Uh, agathosune. Ag- I don't know if I'm saying that right, but agathosune. And what it describes is a goodness that is both virtue and holiness in action. Or to put it another way, it literally translates as uprightness of heart and life. Now for years I've referred to this little podcast where I post these audio recordings and things as holiness of heart and mind. Well, that's where I get it. It's, it's something that John Wesley talks about a lot. And... Perhaps it's because he was a far more brilliant scholar than most of the people I know. And and he looked at this and said, you know, if goodness is nothing else, it's a holiness of heart and mind. And the heart represents that part of you that is made in the image of God. And the mind, in a sense, represents that part of you that strives to be entirely human and temporal And so there's this tension between the two. And the idea of this this, uh, goodness, as Paul describes it, is that it's a merger of the two. And if you think about what we talked about last week, it kind of makes sense. Because we are instantaneously transformed in our heart by new birth in Christ. And yet at the same time, it's housed in this faulty shell. shell that we call the flesh. And so we are experiencing the now but not yet that is one of the mysteries of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we are both living in the future as Christ has predefined it, and yet we await his return which is the future fulfilled entirely. And so the the, the combination of holiness of heart and mind is like that. We're constantly having to renew our minds. Another phrase Paul uses to describe this process, even though our heart is transformed instantly when we surrender to Christ and are born again. And so we're trying to bring the two together and we want the holiness to rule. And what is the source of holiness? It's the Holy Spirit. It is God in the spirit who then transforms our inner being and begins to help us overcome our flesh which brings us back to fruit of the spirit Now, I want to divert for just a second and share a quote with you from Francis Schaeffer in his book, No Little People. He says, the central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism, nor the old Roman Catholicism or the new Roman Catholicism, nor the threat of communism, nor even the threat of rationalism and the monolithic consensus which surrounds us. All these are dangerous, but not the primary threat. Now, listen to this. He says the real problem is this the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually, corporately, tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than in the spirit. So, Francis Schaefer is saying that we do too many things entirely in the power of the flesh, we raise the money. We do the labor, we show up for the work day, we show up for the volunteer work in town, we come to church when we're able to and, and when our schedules permit. We do all of these things in the spirit of our flesh, in the power of our flesh. And because that is so widely tolerated in the body of Christ, it tends to feel like that's what it means to be the church. And Schaefer is saying, but that's not the church. That's a whole lot of people sharing a religious affinity. It's a whole lot of people sharing faith in Jesus Christ that doesn't quite get them there. And so it's a holiness of mind in one sense, and yet it's incomplete because it isn't the merger of heart and mind that would be a spirit-driven Christian person and a spirit-driven body of Christ in a Christian family such as this. Now, you really need to chew on that for a while if any of this is starting to make you tingle. Because personally, I'm dedicating myself as your pastor to finishing my ministry career here with that goal in mind. That this would be a body of believers that is spirit-driven and not driven by the power of our flesh. Sure, we can do a lot of good by pulling together and coordinating our efforts and working hard together. We can do a lot of things that will make the people in this community proud of us and impressed by us, and it'll make us feel awfully good about ourselves. But if we are not the spirit of Christ, we've fallen short. Somehow we have to be the spirit. And that is why we're talking about the fruit of goodness. Because goodness is, in this biblical sense, what happens when the Holy Spirit is driving you. When it is not for any other reason than the Holy Spirit asks you to participate in what God is doing, and you join him. You are doing good works when it was simply your response of obedience to God. Because he said, I'm over here doing this, and I'd like you to join me. And you said, yes, Lord. And now you're like the apostles that he praised because when he said, come follow me, they dropped everything and followed. And now he invites you to do the same. And when you do that, you've just done what was once impossible. You've become good because the Holy Spirit is the very heart and essence of God that can now dwell in you. And that drives me to the last point, And that is that our worship planning team had collaborated to preside over some of the things we've done since the first of the year, but one of the most profoundly team-oriented things we've done since we started working together was to decide that we would do a series of themes and messages around the fruit of the Spirit. And it was because we were anticipating the occasion of Pentecost, which is a Sunday that never gets the kind of recognition that it ought to get in the life of the church. We're good at Christmas, we're good at Easter, but we're not very good at Pentecost, and yet look at what happens on Pentecost. Because Christ was born and became like us, because Christ died like us and then rose again and then created a way for us to be holy in the sight of God through him, because of all of that, God is now able to release the Holy Spirit into us and now we get to be like God. Now, all of a sudden, what God said through Jesus was impossible is possible, and that's what Pentecost is. So in anticipation of Pentecost, our team said, great, let's talk about what that looks like, and Paul was right there ready to share it with us, and that's what we've been doing this last few weeks. We're headed towards Pentecost, where we acknowledge that without the spirit of Christ in us, we could not see the fruit of the spirit. And the fruit of goodness was one of those things that used to be impossible, but now it's entirely possible. And what it requires of you and what it requires of us as an entire family of believers is that we simply watch for God to act and then accept his invitation to join him and then our goodness is simply a reflection of his goodness when we get that right when 51 percent of us get that right this church is going to be amazing and terrifying all at once and i can't wait Now, finally, because I promised you mental health moments during this Mental Health Awareness Month, let me just say that one of the hardest things about people who suffer with mental, for the people who suffer with mental health issues, is when someone stands up here and says, you can be good, and their injury to their spirit and their mind is making it impossible for them to imagine being good. The fact is many people suffer because of trauma and the traumas have a way of turning into mental illness and mental illness has a way of lying to us about things. And so over long stretches of time, we believe the voice of the enemy. And it's hard to hear the truth. Some of you right now are hearing God's word and it's really messing with you because you're able to hear it. Others, it's just bouncing off right now and it's probably because of some sort of dis-ease in your thinking. What is impossible for man is possible for God. And the thing we need to understand is that many times God's answer to your problem and to your prayer for healing comes in the form of divine intervention through the people of Christ, obeying God's spirit and joining God's spirit. In other words, counselors, practitioners, surgeons, and a million other people out there have been gifted with this treasure trove of knowledge of all creation that God opened up, if only for your sake. So here's the miracle. I have seen it myself many times in physical and mental healing in people's lives, including my own. And I can tell you that what, regardless of whether the expert, the psychiatrist or the surgeon or the doctor, regardless of what they think about God, they would not be able to help me Who calls upon God for healing if not for the fact that God revealed to them a body of knowledge that could have only come from the Creator. In other words God opens his treasure trove of knowledge of all things that God has created to the very invisible atomic level and he does it for the sake of his kids. And even if that surgeon or that psychiatrist or that practitioner, that general practitioner or that that counselor or whatever person that is there to help you through your difficulties, even if they don't believe in God, God cares so much about you that he uses them anyway. And it was for your sake that he gave them what they have. And so many times I've prayed for surgeons, whether or not they were believers, Because I wanted them to hear me say, you know what? God's going to make you better than you think you are today. And the reason is so that you can't deny there was more going on than you thought you were capable of. And I would say that would be a way to praise and glorify God. So my mental health moment is to understand that even when you were a sinner, Christ died for you. Even if you're broken, Christ is ready to fix you. And don't be worried if he invites you to take advantage of things that he has facilitated, even through non-believers. It's okay. Consult with other Christians if you're having doubts. But be open and willing to do whatever it takes to be physically and mentally well. I urge you to do this. It's never too late, and there's too much suffering right now. And honestly, there are too many people taking their lives because they feel desperate and hopeless. And we can help. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Now, burn it upon our hearts, we pray, for your name's sake. Amen. Amen.